Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick things off, a big thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication. Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equality, and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in New York, Zurich, London, Delhi, and they believe that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. The internet has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on, that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. So a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors. Today we are talking about the science of framing. What are the methods to uncover the most effective ways of talking about social issues and policy solutions? You know, essentially, how do we translate evidence-based findings into practical techniques for communicating with key stakeholders? And my guest today is Nat Kendall-Taylor, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Frameworks Institute. And he's worked with some amazing organizations, a lot of them I know quite well as well. And without further ado, Nat, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Alberto. It's great to be here and look forward to, to talking with you about all things framing and social change. This is going to be fun. Excellent. Excellent. Well, why don't we kick off with learning a little bit about the Frameworks Institute? What are you guys all about? Sure. So there's a there's a number of, of kind of ironies that I use to explain what, what Frameworks is. The first of which is we, we do communications research, but uh, struggle mightily to, to kind of encapsulate what we are in a short, pithy uh, tagline. So we are a, and all of these things matter, as I'll explain in a second, we are a nonprofit communications, social science research think tank. So you see what I, mm, you see what I meant there. That's not, that's not exactly very, very pithy, but the, the nonprofit part is really important. We aren't a, a for-profit PR organization. We are uh, squarely, completely, exclusively mission-driven. Um, and that mission is to use social science research, which is another part of what I said, to support the, the communications capacity um, of the, the nonprofit sector. Um, and so uh, we, we do that by doing three things uh, primarily. And so again, here you'll see the kind of research component and then the social change kind of social movements perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first thing is that we study, we're really interested in um, how people think about complicated social and scientific issues. So not, not what they say, not how they answer a couple of poorly worded polling questions uh, on an omnibus survey that would ask them about you know, uh, brands of dog food, banking services, early childhood policy, and then how they would vote on a particular legislative issue, but rather really deeply how people use common uh, cultural ways of understanding to, to think about, to make sense, uh, to make meaning of, of these really complicated social issues. And, and we've done that on a really wide range of issues. I counted the other day that in the 12 years that I've been at Frameworks, we've worked on 42 different social issues. So that's wow. everything from 
addiction to to mental health, to justice reform, to immigration, to education, to poverty, to homelessness. And what we're going to be talking about quite quite a bit today is is the work that we've done for the entire 20 years of the organization's lifetime on uh, early childhood development. So that that first one is kind of how people think about issues. The second one is really the framing piece. So how it is that um, presenting information in different ways, uh, using this value or that value, using pronouns like us and them or we, um, using metaphors, which I imagine we'll talk about extensively here, how all those choices influence how people uh, think, feel, and are willing to act. And that that's really the, uh, the science of communication, or more specifically, the science of framing. And for the first, I don't know, seven years that I was at Frameworks, that's all we did. We did those two pieces of empirical research, and we wrote what I still think to this day are unbelievably gripping, awesome, <laughs> 70, 75 page research reports. <laughs> And we slid them across the desk to people who are in kind of on the ground communications roles. And we, we found it took an embarrassingly long time to find out that that did not, that did not change people's communications practice. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the third thing that we now do and that we have, that we kind of devote about half of our, our capacity towards doing is that we take the results of that research that we've done and we actually partner with organizations who are in who are in sectors, who are in fields, to actually be able to use that that research, those findings to to advance to improve their communications practice. So a lot more technical assistance, training, um, the kind of more of the doing part of framing rather than the research part of framing. And we do that work with uh, when I was hired, I think I was either person number five or six, depending on on how you count. Mm. Um, and now we have a staff of about twenty five, largely uh, PhD level social scientists. So I'm a I'm an anthropologist by training, and there's other anthropologists on staff as well as sociologists and linguists and uh, political scientists and and psychologists. So a really kind of wide range, a motley crew of, of disenchanted academics who have jumped mm. out of the academy to try to apply those skills that we were trained uh, in to, mm. to, to understanding this really kind of deceptively complicated thing called communications, how we, how we talk and how uh, the ways that we talk influence what people do as a result. Fascinating, fascinating. Amongst the many things that are interesting about Frameworks Institute, uh, one of them is that your team really is not comprised of communications professionals, right? I mean, it's mainly, as you pointed out, people who are in the social sciences, people who might be in, in psychology, not necessarily communications per se. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a really important point. So th that's another, I guess, one of the ironies is that we do communications and have very few folks on our staff who have any training or experience in, in communications. But um, I think that that creates some some advantages and some kind of unique perspectives on issues. Yeah. But I, but I do have to say that it also creates some, some exposures, right? So um, we can take with that, with that background that you described people who are social scientists rather than communications practitioners, we can really take on these questions of, you know, how best can we communicate the importance of a more robust set of policies to support young children and families. We can take that question on from a really empirical 
kind of objective perspective. We can test different ways of, of communicating that message and, and see what results. And we can really be, uh, be committed to the, the kind of empirical nature of that question. So that's clearly an advantage. And I think that the staff that we have, we can do that in a really, um, in a really rigorous and, and both rigorous and creative methodological mm. approaches to those questions. But the downside is that if you don't have people who are, who kind of talk the talk and walk the walk when it comes to communications practice, there can be a bit of a gap between what we find in the research and bringing it to people who are in those communications roles in the way that they need to, to see it, to hear it, to receive it such that they can use it in their practice. And I would say that, you know, I imagine we'll talk about this uh, a little bit more later, but this is kind of one of the, the key areas where I think we as an organization and our kind of field as, as framing and communications research organizations can, can make some strides. So getting better at um, hearing the questions that communicators have mm-hmm. and getting better at taking our work and really presenting it in a way that's that's most usable and accessible to those people who who need to be able to use it and access it in in their work as as communicators sure sure so let me ask you i mean when i was running a foundation one of the main things that we would think when we were around the table trying to contemplate the best strategies was you know how do we educate the audience how do we drive forward behavioral change how do we increase awareness and uh, the instinct might be to do a press release or it might be to present uh, a research findings in a specific um, in a specific pack. But ultimately, we were finding that that doesn't really change a parent's perception of what is right or what is wrong or how to do it. There are many different ways. And I'd love to get your take because I know a lot of the people listening to the show here are grappling with that. I know that a lot of people listening to this show are thinking, okay, we have amazing evidence here that tells us X, Y, and Z. We need to get this segment to embrace these findings and run with them. Uh, but the segment that they have in question that they want to uh, that they want to engage with may not be a particularly educated segment, may not be particularly sophisticated. So, how do you grapple with these things? What are the what are the shortcuts? What are the things that you would tell people listening? You know, this is how you should do it. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad this is truly an international podcast. You say Z and we say Z. So that's, that's everything. There you go. There you go. It's <laughs> really a, a cross-cultural endeavor here. Um, so I, I mean, I think the situation, the scenario that you describe is, uh, it's probably more common than you're even giving it credit for being. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we work with a lot of foundations. We work with a lot of scientists. We work with a lot of advocates and activists and, I guess there's a there's kind of an overarching observation that I don't I'm in in any way I'm not saying in any way that this is a unique observation but it is a it's a it's a powerful one and it's kind of frequency and depth is the number of times that people who are communicating about these issues make the erroneous assumption that they are their audiences right mm-hmm. so if you and I are people who are we're data geeks maybe um, we we believe strongly that um, that, that layers of evidence win arguments. Um, and we frequently make that assumption in how we communicate. So how many times have you seen communications that start with data? You know, they have another piece of data. There's maybe some charts and graphs about data, and then there's more data. Mm. And that we have, uh, because it kind of works like this 
for us that we have this assumption that you know you, you reach a point of this this data layering whereby people have massive wild epiphanies and come to see the issue and the solutions as we do and i think that there's there's reams and piles of communications evidence and anecdotes and experience that shows that that's not the case that that the things that 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 convince us and the things that brought us to this dance are frequently not the same things that convince nor bring other people to the, to the dance. So I guess that's kind of one really important observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think can be really helpful to people. It's just this constant sensibility, just this mantra of I am not my audience. And, and some of the mistakes that you fall into when you, when you lose that perspective and some of the really, some of the better decisions that you can make when you keep that in mind. Um, so it can be the difference between kind of database, data-driven, almost data-exclusive messaging and messaging that um, that kind of turns on and activates common, widely shared values. Uh, so that's been a major part of the work that we've done with the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University in, in the way that that organization has framed is that kind of realizing that we have really strong evidence, but to be able to get people to to appreciate, to appreciate it, to access it, to be able to process it. Part of the beginning of that communication needs to be about connecting with with commonly held values, giving a people, giving people the sense that the issue matters and why it matters to them. So I mm. guess that's that's one really important uh, kind of yeah. observation. Uh, the the other is that so we also have this tendency to think of misperceptions as being fallacious, right? Like fallacies. They are, people are wrong. People don't understand. And I think that that's a, that's, that's a, that's a bit dangerous. And Mm -hmm. as a, as a psychological, as a cultural anthropologist, I think my perspective on that is not that people are wrong. Um, even though they, you know, factually they (laughs) may be wrong, but, but, but rather, that people have developed ways of thinking about these issues of understanding the world of kind of conceptualizing the, the motivations of the people in it. And sometimes, and that, and essentially that's what culture is, right? It's a set of these shared heuristics and patterns of reasoning that we have that we use to, to, to function and make sense of, of the world. Hmm. Sometimes those ways of thinking can be in opposition to what we are trying to communicate as as people working in philanthropy, as scientists, as advocates, uh, whatever it may be. And so it's, it's more about people having preconceived notions of the way that young children work, of families work, that society works, that government works. And those ways of thinking um, occasionally impeding our ability to communicate information mm-hmm. rather than, you know, thinking about things as right or wrong. And when you start to think about kind of this role of culture, as this mediator, you know, affecting everything, how everything that, that we say is interpreted, you start to get some really different approaches to thinking about communication. So a right-wrong heuristic would lead you to think that, you know, I have to correct people. I have to go in with the facts. I have to show people how they're wrong, and I have to show them how I'm right. And just to be really obvious, if you can't tell from my tone, like that generally is not a very effective practice when it comes to the framing and communication, but if we can see understanding, uh, if we can see kind of gaps in, in understanding as 
preconceived notions and that we need to work kind of at that level of understanding, we start to move towards practices like, like metaphors as ways to build conceptual understandings or shift them in certain directions. Interesting. Interesting. I imagine if you have global organizations that are trying to convey a message, an evidence-based message, as it were, to a global audience, since you're bringing in the cultural element, one may need to tweak things accordingly if you're in Latin America versus Sub-Saharan Africa versus East Asia. Yeah, so this is um, this is one of these things that as, a, as an anthropologist has kind of continually driven me crazy over the last mm-hmm. 12 years work is that you have, I mean, for good reason, the, the kind of holy grail here would be a message that works everywhere in the world such that a global organization just has to say one thing. But I think, you know, when I say it like that, hopefully the ridiculousness of that proposition becomes apparent, right? That you may have a point that you want to make around the world globally, but how you make that point is going to have to be, it's going to have to be honed and, and made particular to, to regions, to countries, to regions within countries, to subcultures within regions, within countries. Uh, and that's kind of where this communications work gets both complicated, but also where you start to see, you start to see much more effective messaging and communications efforts when you acknowledge the role that culture plays and how people, how people think and process information. So my that I've had many conversations with with folks um, in the early childhood sector uh, who who are after these kind of magic magic frames or magic messages that will work globally, and I yeah. feel like I'm in those in those situations. I'm I'm perpetually the the wet blanket or the bad guy who's who's kind of cautioning against that kind of a perspective mm. on on this. Mm. So tell me about that. I mean, I know if if we're going to talk about data and data and data and more data. Um, few places rival Harvard University for that. Uh, you've done some amazing work with Jack Shonkoff at Harvard Center in the Developing Child, a mutual friend and uh, pretty much one of the leading uh, centers of excellence for early childhood development. Tell me a little bit, love to know about how you went about working with Jack and the team to take some truly remarkable research and translate it into actionable messages that actually change behaviors, that actually increase awareness. What? Tell us a little bit about that. I'm personally fascinated uh, by it, and I know a lot of the uh, people listening to it today are as well. It's, um, it's like my favorite case study framing project that um, that I've had the opportunity, the privilege really to, to work on. So there's a there's a lot of history. This goes back a long way. And so some of what I'm going to talk about right now is is a reconstruction of a history that was before I started at Frameworks. So I've been at Frameworks for 12 years and, and Frameworks and uh, Jack and what became the center were working together uh, for quite a while before that. Um, but I so so I'm going to try to reconstruct that history or recount that history in a way that I hope I'm getting it all right. But um, great, great. Jack, if Jack's listening out there, feel free to, we'll to write him, up. We'll or, have or him dial in. Correct us. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think I, so. I think the history is actually important. I'll try to be pretty quick about it. Um, but so the the center really started from. Um, I mean, what I would what I would say was some some frustration on 
on Jack's behalf, where there was a, a National Academy of Sciences report called From Neurons to Neighborhoods, which was, I think, in Jack's mind, going to be a really revolutionary document in terms of informing policy and practice. Um, and, and largely, it wasn't as effective as Jack thought uh, or hoped it would be. And I think that um, some of the realization or some of the thinking as to why is the genesis of the partnership between frameworks and the uh, National uh, Center on the Developing Child, um, which is that it wasn't that the science was was wrong or or not powerful or not uh, really strong and kind of consensus based, but it was the way in which that science was communicated, which was kind of accounting for some of the less than revolutionary or, or kind of uh, powerful effects that that Jack thought it could have, but that it didn't. So that that realization that it was it was more about how that science was being delivered than about what that science was saying that was really the place that required some work. So that realization led to the founding of the National uh, uh, of the Center and then the National Scientific Council on the Developing Child, which is kind of the scientific body which sits alongside the center and works on the science. But a lot of the work of the council and the center was centered around communications. So this is what we know from the science, but how can we take this knowledge and deliver it in a way that um, is understandable, is accessible, is engaging, is resonant, is powerful to the people who we want to reach. Um, and so that question has led to a what is now, I, I think, a, approximately a 20-year collaboration between Frameworks, the Council, and the Center, in which Frameworks' role is by the way, to... By the way, I had no idea that the collaboration was so um, stretched so far back. I, uh, yeah, that's so the, as well right. I, I met Jack on my second day of, of right. being at Frameworks. I went to a meeting of the National Scientific Council, um, and it was both uh, kind of inspiring, but also utterly overwhelming hmm. that um, that these scientists get together and they 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 kind of they basically bring consensus together around these really complicated but important points. And then the frameworks role or frameworks role in that is to figure out how to how to get that science about, you know, whether it's about sensitive and critical periods or epigenetics or executive function, how to how to how to communicate that in a way that people will who people who aren't those scientists will actually understand. Right. Um, but, you know, our role over those 20 years has been has been that role. So we conduct communication science research alongside the the scientific the developmental science that the the council and the center do and we continually have those two sciences being in conversation and i think that's led to some uh, some really important communications work whether that's specific metaphors that have helped people grasp core concepts from the science serve and return um, brain architecture toxic stress i mean those are those are, are are phrases that have really captured the imagination for most people working in early childhood development these days uh, toxic stress brain architecture you know serve and return interaction those are the bread and butter of of, of, of the conversation in some respects yeah, and I think that there's, I love the fact that they just seem so kind of fluid and sensible, but the, the, the work, 
that went into the, the design, the testing, and then the kind of incorporation of those, those concepts into the way that scientists and members of the sector speak was by no means simple, straightforward, or, you know, without, without hard work. Mm -hmm. So each of those concepts went through extensive development and testing, and then extensive kind of um, pushing and pulling among the scientists to figure out how to, how to incorporate it into communications practice. And my, I had an interaction with a, a member of the sector by maybe two years ago, where we were talking about our work and the work of the center, and uh, we were talking about toxic stress. And the person said, "That's that's that's not a metaphor. That's a that's a scientific concept." Hmm. And I, I, that was is one of my best moments as a as a framing scholar, as a framing researcher, where you realize that something that was deliberately constructed to do a specific thing in terms of people's understanding of the science has become incorporated into the field at a level where it's no longer kind of visibly, obviously a communications tool, but rather is a, is a principle that is kind of solidly knitted into or connected with how the field yeah. thinks about their work and talks. I mean, that, that, that's exactly, you want the communications tool to- How rewarding, how rewarding that must have felt. Yeah, you want it to, you want it to not be a communications tool, right? Sure. As soon as it kind of fades into the discourse and kind of becomes fluid, that's really when um, when you've got something that is that is doing what it what it needs to do. Amazing. And how did you test all of this? I know there's no time to do uh, a, a detailed play by play on 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 a, on a twenty year interactions, but um, if you had to distill it in a few sound bites, how do you how do you go from lengthy research to a few words like toxic stress, serve and return interaction, brain architecture. Yeah, what's the what's the Mark Twain saying? If I I would have written a shorter letter if I had mm. more time. <laughs> um, it's like to come up with something that like simple, that kind of concise and sensible, um, actually takes takes more work than coming up with something that's that's less kind of um, concise. Uh, and so. Yeah. All of the work that we do starts, it kind of goes through those two processes that I talked about at the beginning. So we first understand how people, in the case of toxic stress, how people think about stress. People who, with whom we want to communicate, not scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, that understanding of kind of underlying thinking is then used to, to identify what the main challenges are in communicating about that issue. And on, on the issue of stress, it's the sense that kind of this Nietzscheism of what doesn't kill us makes us stronger that is that is power, particularly powerful in U.S. culture, but exists almost everywhere where we've done this work. And what we know from uh, the science of development that there are there there are significant um, kind of chronic unbuffered experiences of stress, which are detrimental, which have a, a negative effect on development, kind of how you how you bridge those two understandings, then designing a really wide uh, kind of ranging set of hypotheses for what you think will do that you know we think these 15 metaphors may have a chance we think talking about this uh you know using this value might help that and then we empirically test those hypotheses using qualitative kind of interview methods but also large sample um, experimental research that sees, that looks at the difference between, you know, if I talk about this using metaphor A versus metaphor B, 
How does that affect people's understanding? How does that affect the, the solutions that they support? And very slowly kind of winding our way through iterative research that, that starts to give us some consistent and predictable answers to those questions of kind of what can we say that will make this information mm-hmm. accessible and mm-hmm. usable to people. So it is a, it's a, it's a long process. It is a really collaborative process. So our work with the National Scientific Council is, you know, we do a bit of research, we come to them, we get feedback. We do some more research, we bring it back to them, we get feedback. And it's this back and forth that I think has has been pretty unique among the the long ongoing projects that I've worked on in terms of its uh, just the relationship between those between frameworks and the the council and the center and the kind of deep understanding amongst everybody who's part of those groups that the the science of the de- science of development the science of development is what really drives the work but that there is this other science that is really important science of communications if that developmental science is going to have the impact and the effects that that everyone who's who's a member of the the center and the council believes and is deeply committed to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of communicating with a mass audience versus communicating with say a much smaller uh, group of say policymakers, elected officials, um, do you engage on that side as well in terms of how do you get the message across to policymakers? Yeah, so we've actually um, done quite a bit of research with the center and the council that have that has looked at that that difference. So, to what degree do policymakers need different messages than those that are that are destined that are kind of targeted um, at at members of the mm-hmm. general public? And and we're not alone in this this finding that I'm about to tell you about. There's lots of other research that shows this. But um, the surprising thing, believe it or not, is that the policymakers are people too. <laughs> And mm. uh, many of the same kind of ways that members of the general public have of thinking about these these complex social and scientific issues are in place and in play when it comes to how policymakers think about them. Not only are policymakers people too, but policymakers are frequently hyper attentive to to public thinking because they, you know, most policymakers know kind of who they're accountable to and have some sense that they need to be in step with with public thinking and public opinion on things. Now, that doesn't mean that the same way that you would deliver uh, communication on early childhood development, um, you know, is is you know cut and pasted or the same when you talk to families and caregivers versus state or federal policymakers. So there's clearly there clearly has to be some adaptation to the way that those messages are delivered. But I think the overarching finding in, in our work is that you can use some of this, these same common concepts, those three metaphors that we talked about, brain architecture, server return, and toxic stress. Those, those concepts have, have power in their ability to speak to different audiences. And again, obviously delivered in different ways for different groups. But the power of having those common concepts is that you're able to to, to move ideas and amplify um, ideas through communications rather than, than kind of splitting and splintering um, mm-hmm. what it is that you say or seeming or seeming kind of duplicitous or um, uh, kind of having some messages that you say over here, but then completely different messages that you say over there. And in the context that we are in right now, it's very hard to 
sure. to kind of compartmentalize sure. communications like that, right? The thing that you say over here to people is likely to get over here to policymakers. The thing you say over here to policymakers is likely to get over here to to people. Um, and and obviously, we don't need to talk about that. But when that happens, that can put people in some yeah. some unfortunate positions. Is there a need to refresh the message every so often, just like a company might refresh a brand's look? Um, at what point do you think, and never mind that the underlying research evolves as well, um, how do you how do you go about that? Yeah, so so there's a bunch of different ways to answer that question. So the the easiest answer to that question is that um, because we have kind of an ongoing portfolio of research with the center and the council, there are there are continually new concepts that are, are emerging from the science in a way that, as Jack says, are ready for prime time. And what that means that they they have kind of really solid scientific consensus around them to the point where folks in the in the field feel that they are they are ready to, to go out of the field and start to inform policy and practice. So mm-hmm. again, you know, an ongoing list of those things over the years, executive function, epigenetics, plasticity. Um, and the way that that works is as a concept kind of comes to consensus from the council our job then becomes to conduct new research to figure out how to kind of add that piece into the existing communication strategy so that that is continually evolving um and and is needs to be something that, that works like that so that's one answer to the question the other answer to the question is that because the work that we do really is at um kind of in terms of the stratigraphy of culture, kind of depth and layers, like we're, we're working really deep. And the, one of the advantages of working really deep is that um, when you find communications tools that work at that level, they have quite a bit of longevity and durability. Mm. So brain architecture has been used for, I don't know how many years right now. It remains in usage. It remains effective. It's kind of doing the same cognitive conceptual work in terms of people's understanding of the science as it did 10 years ago. Um, so there is some durability to this kind of work. Uh, but as you said, the science is, is moving. And I feel like at the moment we're in right now, there's some pretty big stuff that's coming out of it. And so new concepts require kind of continual communications and translational work. Excellent. Excellent. Really fascinating stuff. How did you get into all of this, by the way, before we wrap things up? How did you end up where you are today? It sounds like you have a dream job. Yeah, it is a, it is a dream job. So I, I feel like um, people, not a lot of people have jobs for 12 years anymore, but I'm, no. I'm, 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 I've been here for 12 and I, I cannot think of anything that I would rather be doing. So it really is this, this unbelievably mm-hmm. lucky job for an, for an anthropologist to, to, to work and think about culture not only, I mean, the thing that we haven't talked about is not only have we done work in the U.S. on on early childhood, but we've now done done this kind of work in ten different countries, um, mm-hmm. and so that again is just um, you said dream job. It's it's dreamy to be able to do that kind of cross cultural work and 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 those learnings that that come between them. So how I got here is really it's really like most things are kind of luck. So I. Yeah, I'm trained in a kind of anthropology that's called psychological anthropology, which means I'm deeply interested in culture and how it influences the way that people think. Um, I worked for a long time on the Swahili coast of East Africa as a medical anthropologist, studying how 
how families with children with um, chronic seizure disorders, so persistent epilepsy, how those families make decisions about the treatment that they receive for their for their child. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with a group of public health folks, and my job was to kind of figure out the role that culture played in those decisions and to to kind of issue a spoiler alert, it plays a huge role, right? The way that people <laughs> think about what causes um, kifafa, what causes epilepsy is really significant in understanding the decisions they make and is really significant in crafting better programs and, and ways of providing treatment for epilepsy. Um, and so I yeah. lived abroad for uh, three, four years and actually did my my interviews for the frameworks job from Kazakhstan and from London, uh, and then uh, kind of moved back to the U.S. 12 years ago and started this, and I've been doing it since. And there and, you are. And here I am. Excellent, excellent. A couple of things. Success in the next 10 years, which dovetails perfectly with the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. What would you like for Frameworks in 2030? If we're having a coffee in, in 10 years' time, what would you like to look back on and say, wow, yeah. can't believe we did this? So, so I guess these are general things, not specific things, which make for less good answers, but I'd like to see this kind of trajectory of people realizing the importance of communications in social change, social movements work continue to the point where, um, in 10 years, as people are trying to make change on issues, thinking about framing and communications is like, it's compulsory. It's like you, you have to be thinking about that in order to do that work. So that's that's one thing. Um, yeah. I think as, as a researcher, there's lots that we can be doing to improve the way that we do research. We need to be harvesting questions more regularly that come out of the field. We need to be better at designing research that's really um, contextually sensitive. And we need to get a lot better at how we take those results and, and bring them back to the to the field. And then I guess the area that I'm most interested in these days, ironically, as a researcher is not research, but it's what we do with research. So I kind of think about this as mobilization. So if you have ideas that move thinking, those ideas in your hands and your hands only don't do anything, you have to get them to get them out to people, right? You have to mobilize them, you have to get them to the right people in the right ways over time. Absolutely. That that's an area of practice that um, when it comes to communications and framing research that is really um, relatively thin and developing. And in 10 years, I'd like to be able to be talking with you and, and be talking about a really robust practice of mobilization that has emerged. Well, here's to your success on that front. What's the um, key takeaway for our audience? What would you love them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? So I think I, I think I said these two things already, so I'll just highlight them quickly. I think the one is the, the realization that you are not your audience. Kind of as a, as a mantra, if you can repeat that, I think you will make, you will fall into fewer traps and you will make better decisions as a communicator. Um, and then the other one is this, this kind of role of, of, of framing in the process of change making, that, that what you know is important right? What, what Jack knows about the science of early childhood is important. But there's also this other thing, um, which is about how you, how you say what you know, that is really important, kind of the, the significance of framing, that it's not just about what, but it's about how. 
in order to have impact, in order to have an effect with, with, with your information. Excellent. I could not agree with you more. Nat, thank you ever so much for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. And to our audience, as always, thank you very much for tuning in, for listening, for subscribing, for sharing. Your listening in every week means a lot. And, uh, and I thank you very much for that. Nat Kendall Taylor, the Chief Executive Officer of the Frameworks Institute. Nat, thank you so much. It's been really fun. And I think you have a, a very uh, a great job. Uh, so good luck to you with, uh, with your efforts and, uh, and success to make those um, aspirations for 2030 a reality. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>